If you want to open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2, we have begun a study of Matthew, which corresponds really nicely with the Christmas story this time of year in the season of Advent. Matthew chapter 2 is a story that you're very familiar with. It's the story of King Herod and the Magi, which I did not know you pronounced it Magi. I'd always called them Magi. They're Magi. Okay? I clicked on Merriam-Webster and listened to it, and sure enough, it's Magi. So this morning, we're going to hear the story of the Magi. Um, and I apologize for many years of past mispronunciations in that manner. But it's a familiar story, and it's so familiar that we can miss the wonder of it. Okay? Matt Woodley has done a good job with a creative summary. He says, it goes like this, Matthew 2, Matthew draws us into one wild and crazy adventure tale. A small band of scholar explorers led by a magic star leave their homeland on a chase for a newborn king. En route, they meet a crafty villain bent on finding and killing this alleged new king. A cat and mouse game ensues, but the explorers outwit the villain. Embarrassed and enraged, the villain wipes out all the boys in a nearby village. The mothers wail inconsolably for their murdered sons. Meanwhile, warned by an angelic dream, the newborn king and his family hastily leave town joining the ranks of world refugees as they flee to safety. And that's our story. That's Matthew 2. Um, it, is, it is an adventure tale. And what I want you to think about as we walk through it this morning are two things. Who is Christ being presented to us as in this story, especially in the prophecies? Pay special attention to the prophecies. So who is this Jesus? And the second question is, how will we respond to him? Because there are a series, there's about four different people who have varied responses, groups of people uh, in this story. And I'd like for you to ask yourself the question, is that me? Am I responding like that? Should I be responding like that? So keep those questions in mind as we walk through our stories starting at the beginning. We'll work our way through the whole chapter, hopefully. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so right away in Matthew 2, we're introduced to not one but two kings. Herod the Great is the first king. That's what he liked to call himself, Herod the Great. And he was, in many ways, an able ruler. He kept the peace with Rome beautifully. He um, built building projects that were very successful. But that is not his lasting legacy, as we'll see in just a few minutes. Um, the second king is called the king of the Jews, and that is Jesus. But you need to know, by that title, it means more than he's just the king of a small Middle Eastern nation. Um, the stars do not arrange them around second-rate kings. Okay? They arrange themselves around the great king, and we're going to see that unfold. Another group that we meet are the wise men or the magi. Okay? The infamous three kings of Orient are, as we sang this morning. Now, there's some things that we know about them, and there are things we don't know. We don't know how many there were, okay? There were three gifts, hence the assumption there are three kings. 
but we don't know for sure. And we sure don't know their names. If we don't know how many of them, we don't know their names. Though Christian history has developed really creative names that you might want to consider for your children um, that are assigned to each of the alleged three kings. Um, What we do know is that they are from the east. Um, The best guesses are Persia or perhaps Babylon. They've been traveling a long while, uh, maybe even months on this journey. And they have been following a star. In all likelihood, they were students of the stars, astrologers of some sort. Make no mistake about it, though. God wields that star and gives to them the scriptures to draw them to Christ. And these magi, they have come to worship. And we'll see that as our story unfolds. Down in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, that the Magi had come and were looking for the king of the Jews, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Herod is worried and all Jerusalem with him, and for good reason. See, his, Herod's lasting, enduring legacy was his ruthless paranoia towards any threat to his throne. Here's a summary from one of the commentators. Herod murdered one of his wives, arranged a drowning accident for his brother-in-law, hired hitmen to strangle two of his sons. He even concocted a plan to ensure that everyone would cry at his funeral. As soon as he died, his goon squads would kill some popular local leaders, triggering a deluge of public grief. So you now understand why all Jerusalem was troubled when they found out that the king was troubled. It did not bode well for them. So Herod convenes a panel of Bible scholars, okay? And he wants to find out where the Christ is to be born. And from the lips of Herod himself, Jesus is assigned the title, the Christ. Not just the king of a small nation, the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. One writer says the title Christ as understood by Jesus, is the Christ that we truly want. He is the Messiah who conquers sin by becoming sin. He is the crucified one who rescues us out of this present evil age. He has become the descendant of David who will reign on David's throne forever and ever. He is the one, according to Philippians 2, before whom the whole entire universe will bow and proclaim him to be Lord. And this band of scholars points Herod back to the scriptures, to the prophet Micah, some 700 years before, who points those, uh, who they then points those magi, magi to the little town of Bethlehem. And this is the first of about four prophecies that are going to unfold in our passage today that tell us who Christ is. The first of these is really quite remarkable. 
by this prophecy, every city on earth is excluded from being able to birth, be the birthplace of the Messiah, except little Bethlehem. Every other city is ruled out. And this city is located just about five miles outside of Jerusalem. Herod could be there in an hour or two. It is the city of David. It's where King David was born. So this first prophecy is reinforcing the statement that Matthew opened his gospel with, that Jesus is the son, the long-awaited son of David, who is going to reign on David's throne forever. Continues in verse 7 where it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Herod is deceptively sending the magi, the magi, to do his detective work. And they are miraculously guided by a star. Now, what in the world is a star that guides people? How does that work? And lots of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. I am in agreement with John Piper in his response. I think it's very insightful. He says, over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about just how certain things happened. How did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? How did a star stand over the place where the child was? The answer is, and this is where I agree with him, we do not know. Okay? We do not know. He says there are numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights. We just don't know. Then he says something very wise. It's good for us to hear this. He says, I want to exhort you not to become preoccupied with developing theories that are only tentative in the end and have very little spiritual significance. He says, I risk a generalization to warn you. People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things as how the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. You do not see in them often a deep cherishing of the great central things of the gospel. The holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return and the final judgment, 
they always seem to be taking you down a sidetrack with a new article or book. He says there is little centered rejoicing. Does that describe your faith? Are you are what we could call a fringer? Is your faith more about problem solving and troubleshooting than it is about knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, bowing down and worshiping and serving Jesus? Are you more intrigued by who wrote Hebrews than who Hebrews points you to, which is Jesus? Piper continues, he says, What is plain concerning this matter of the star is that it is doing something that it cannot do on its own. It is guiding Magi to the Son of God to worship Him. There is only one person in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the stars, God Himself. So the lesson is plain. God is guiding foreigners to Christ to worship Him. And He is doing it by exerting global, probably even universal influence and power to get it done. Luke shows God influencing the entire Roman Roman Empire so that the census comes at the exact time to get a virgin to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy with her delivery. Matthew shows God influencing the stars in the sky to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so they can worship Him. God still is doing that for some of you. That you're sitting in a church today is right up there with God's miraculous moving of stars to get the Magi to Bethlehem. Okay? I mean, if your grandmother, who prayed for you all the time, knew that you were in church today, she would sit up in her grave and shout, Hallelujah! Okay? God did miraculous things. Maybe not stars, but conversations and situations and circumstances to get you where you are today. And for some of you, this is your day to believe in the one who was born in Bethlehem. And God has brought you here explicitly for that reason, through all kinds of twists and turns. This could be your day. And the mercy of God is on display in His choice of these foreigners, these magi. Dale Bruner says, in Israel's conviction, the Magi were idolaters, short and simple. The Magi were held to be people who looked and who taught others to look to beggarly creatures rather than to the Creator for guidance. So to Israel and the early church then, astrologers would be the least deserving guests at the birthday party of the Christ. This is why Matthew, the evangelist, is delighted to see exactly such persons invited. The invitation of the astrologers to the coming out party of Christ indicates the deep and wide mercy of God. This is not an endorsement of astrology. This is a statement about the breadth and the depth of the mercy of God. It's enough for the unlikeliest of people to be drawn to Christ, even you and me. Just like in the genealogy, remember in chapter 1? All those unlikely people involved in the process. There's one more thing about the star that I think it's helpful. Um, 
The star leads the, the Magi to Jerusalem and eventually to Bethlehem, but it's not enough by itself. This natural revelation in creation is not enough. When they're in Jerusalem, it takes the scriptures unfolded to them to get them where they need to go. Even though it's supernatural, natural revelation, it's not enough. The scriptures are still essential for bringing people, these magi particularly, to find Christ. Um, They are also worshipers. And they are mentoring us in what it means to worship this Christ child. They are glad. They are really, really glad to be in the presence of Christ. I love the way verse 10 puts it. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were really glad to be able to worship Christ. And they offered the choicest of gifts, their treasures. They offered to this, and they were gifts worthy of a king. Perhaps gifts that were used to fund that family's life in Egypt. This poor, they were a poor family. And these gifts may have been their sustenance while they were in Egypt for a year or so. They gave their treasure to Christ. And they sought him so earnestly. They had to travel by night. That's when you can follow a star, typically. They probably did it for months based on the age of Christ when they found him, probably six months to a year or so, the scholars tell us. Glad, sacrificial worship is exemplified by these magi. And they are contrasted with the religious leaders, that scholar panel that Herod pulled together, right? They know where the Christ is to be born. And rumors are swirling around the city that these magi are there to worship him They tell them where to go, but they never go themselves. Why don't they go? Why don't they seek out the Christ? Why are they content with the data, the information, the knowledge, when they could be bowing down at Christ's feet themselves? Step back for a second, and as we think about that contrast... Are you like them at all? Could you be described as an indifferent knower or an exceedingly joyful worshiper? Which one best describes you? I love the seminary. It is God's great kindness to our church. But the closer you are to the seminary, the more you have to beware of the pitfall of being an indifferent knower, content with data about, rather than a joyful worshiper at the feet of Jesus. Brennan Manning wisely says, I believe that the real difference in the American church is not between conservatives and liberals, fundamentalists and charismatics, not between Republicans and Democrats. The real difference is between the aware and the unaware. When somebody is aware of the love of Christ, the same love the Father has for Christ, that person is just spontaneously grateful and cries of thankfulness become the dominant characteristic of their interior life. And the byproduct of gratitude is joy. He says we're not joyful and then become grateful. We're grateful and that makes us joyful. 
Are you grateful? Do you understand what it means for you that Christ has come at Christmas and gave his life at Easter? Do you get it? Have you taken time to think about it so that it makes you smile and makes you worship? Or does what Charles Spurgeon said about his students apply to you? He says, when you speak of heaven, let your face light up. It's good news. He says, when you speak of hell, well, then your everyday face will do. Because they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, Cresswellian joy. Because they got it. Their rescuer had come. Do you get it? Have you taken time to ponder it and worship him for it with joy? The wonder of who this child is and that he has come for you. What continues in verse 13. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and its mother and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod's fear is transformed to furious anger. While he was planning to deceive the Magi, they have deceived him. And he's furious. There's a fascinating aside here that um, Dale Bruner mentions in his commentary. He says, Matthew consistently calls Herod king until... Significantly, the Magi worship Christ. For immediately after their worship, Herod is symbolically dethroned and is never again called king. Why is Herod so provoked then? Because he is Herod the Great no more. He has been bethroned by the true great king, the king of kings and lord of lords, the son of David, born at Bethlehem. Now, Herod sees Jesus as a rival. And this is where his rivalry leads him to, the murder of innocent children. Now, Herod is so over-the-top villainous that it's hard for us to see ourselves in him But we must. Dale Bruner says, 
Herod is what I am deep down inside. Because whenever we say no to Christ, we are making ourselves a rival to him. If for nothing else than this little bit of space that's called my life, I am now a rival to the lordship of Christ in my life. And Abraham Kuyper put it well. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And when we fail to obey, when we hear the scriptures taught or when we read it on our own and we see what it says and we see how it's to bear on our life and we resist it, um, we... We are nurturing and feeding our inner Herod. We are becoming rivals for Christ as Lord. And this is the utmost foolishness. Are you putting yourself up as a rival to Christ by your disobedience? Is there an area in your life where Jesus has called you to a certain measure of obedience and you have put it off. Herod heard the prophecy just as did the Magi. The only difference was he would not bend his knee to it. This should make disobedience terrifying to us all. When we resist Christ... We become rivals for this square inch of our existence that's called me. And when we, when we rival Christ, bad things happen. Wicked things happen. Good does not prevail. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, it said. How much evil has come into our families because of our disobedience? Now, by contrast to Herod and his rivalry with Christ, look at Joseph. As we saw last week, he is the paradigm of what it means to obey God. And you see it again and again this week in Verses 13 to 14, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream. This is what it says. Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod's about to search for the child to destroy him. So what does Joseph do? Notice the language. He rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Precise, full, immediate obedience. Same thing later. In down in verse 19, an angel appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So what's Joseph do? Look at the language. He rose, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. Precise, full, prompt obedience. If you are living in disobedience today in an area of your life that you are aware of, God is prompting you today by, by the, the horrifying example of Herod and the beautiful example of Joseph to repent of your disobedience as we come to the Lord's table today and covenant by His grace to walk in obedience to Him. Because your rivalry will take you places you don't want to go. 
There are two more prophecies that unfolded in this passage we just read. Um, They are not particular fulfillments like the Bethlehem thing where it says he'll be born in Bethlehem and then blam, born in Bethlehem. They're general prophecies along the lines of, remember all those um, sacrifices in the book of Deuteronomy, how they um, pointed towards in a general way the great sacrifice, the greater sacrifice that Christ would make, and how all the kings of the Old Testament, especially the good kings, point forward to the day when there would be a greater king who is Christ. In that same way, these two prophecies point to Christ. For instance, the kind of the geography lesson that's included in here. He leaves and goes to Egypt, and then he leaves Egypt, and he comes back to Israel. Um, That has both um, protective significance and symbolic significance. Listen to Dale Bruner. He says, interpreters have discovered that Jesus' career in Matthew chapter 2 retraces the career of old Israel almost exactly. Jesus goes from the promised land in Israel to the classic land of escape, Egypt, just as all the patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph had done in the beginning. Then, like a second Moses in a kind of second exodus, Jesus is called up out of Egypt to return to the land of promise again. By means of his itinerary, Matthew is saying, look, look at Jesus, the new Israel. Humanity has a new representative before God who does what Israel was supposed to do. So this geographical movement is not just a geography lesson. It's showing us that Christ is the hope of Israel, the new Israel the new Messiah for whom all history has been waiting. There's another prophecy that we just read. This one is dark and sorrowful, and it involves the death of those little boys, age two and under, all around Bethlehem. Probably a small group of children, scholars tell us, maybe, maybe a couple dozen, maybe like what happened in Connecticut. But a great tragedy all the same. The quote Um, in verse 18, is from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And it is a great tragedy that was happening in Jeremiah's day. The nation was being taken captive into exile by a foreign power, and they were weeping over the, the imprisonment of their sons. Just like in Jesus' time, there was a great tragedy and much weeping. But that's not the only point of comparison. The context for Jeremiah and this great sorrow of Jeremiah is that that great sorrow is swallowed up by a greater hope. Look at the next two verses in Jeremiah, chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is Hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. There is hope for your future. So in Jeremiah, though there was a great sorrow with much weeping, there was a greater hope. And that points toward what happened in Jesus' day. A great sorrow with the loss of those children, but the birth of a far greater hope. The Christ born 
into that day. Just as in the great suffering by the mothers of Bethlehem, there is a great context of hope in the child who lives, a hope that exceeds suffering, the worst suffering that evil can bring. Christ's hope is greater. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. It's kind of a like father, like son fear. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And it's interesting to me that not long after Herod executes this slaughter, maybe within the year, um, he dies. The timing seems more than coincidental to me, that after this great act of evil, his life should be required of him. There is this one last prophecy, one last dream that leads to one last prophecy, and it is down in that last verse, in verse 23, he went and lived in Nazareth, a city called Nazareth, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. And if you look through the Old Testament, there's no specific prophecy that he's going to be a Nazarene. You can't find it. There's some interesting word plays that are very similar, but there's no specific prophecy. And perhaps the best sense out of this prophecy that I found is that it was spoken by the prophets collectively. This is what they were saying about him. And it helps to think about what Nazareth was in Jesus' day. It was a town so little that it didn't even make the maps. Okay? Historians overlooked Nazareth. Um, we're talking Pocomoke, okay? Do you know where Pocomoke is? You're within 10 minutes of Pocomoke. Most of you have never heard of it. I don't even know if it's on the maps. Saying you're from Nazareth is saying that you are a hick from the sticks, okay? You're a nobody from nowhere. It is the epitome of a place of humble upbringing. And I think that may be the point of this prophecy, the point that the Apostle Paul makes explicit in Philippians 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Okay? He grew up in Nazareth, for gosh sakes. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of David. He is the the new Israel. He is a hope that overcomes the worst of suffering. Come in humble form as a child in Bethlehem and then in Nazareth. How is God prompting you to respond to this child, Jesus? Like like the Magi, or like Joseph? Is he convicting you that there are parts of you that are like Herod or like the scholars? 
as God is speaking to you, I want to encourage you to bring your yes to whatever God is saying to the Lord's table today. And as you partake in worship for the Christ, who is our Savior, that you would bring that commitment with you by God's favor to obey him in the matter that he's speaking to you about. If you'll bow with me in prayer, I'd like to lead us in an ancient Advent prayer to ready us for the table.